Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. Thanks so much for joining us. And if this is your first time, I invite you to hit subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever else you might be listening to the show. All right, everyone. I am here with Andrea Benino. Andrea is a research scientist at DeepMind. Andrea, welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. Thanks, Sam. Thanks for having me. So you are working on artificial general intelligence at DeepMind. Tell us a little bit about where your interest in AGI comes from. Thanks for the question. Yeah, my interest in AGI comes from my background. I'm actually a neuroscientist who decided to study how the brain works, and in particular, memory, create our memory, why we create our memory. In particular, I'm interested in in a subset of the memory field, which is called episodic memory. So episodic memory, those memory that um, relates to some episode that you experience in the past uh, in a specific location sometimes or with specific people. So they are also referred as autobiographical memories. And episodic is in contrast to what other kinds of memory? Another example could be semantic memory. So semantic is like, you know, the meaning of something. For example, you know, what is a bicycle? That would be a semantic memory. Mm-hmm. But if I ask you to remind you to remember specifically when, when you, have, when you cycle with someone, then maybe now you're thinking about a specific episode in your life. That would be an episodic memory. So you relate something to a specific moment in time. It's also described as the what, when, and where of a specific event, like episodic memory. Got it, got it. And to some degree, the relationship between memory and intelligence is kind of an obvious one in the sense that we use our memory and our prior experiences in interacting with the world, making decisions and all that. But is there a kind of broader significance to memory in the development of AGI? Yeah, I think, as you say, it's kind of an obvious one, right? So we live in a world that is consistent. So if we gain some experience in the world, then we want to reuse that experience. We don't want to relearn every time from scratch. So you can already see how that's valuable. Mm -hmm. But something that I actually study over my PhD is that episodic memory, it's also a way, so it's something that enables generalization. In particular, we study how, let's say, if you experience two events, A and B, that are related together, and later in time, you experience other two events, like B and C, that are again related together. Mm-hmm. Your brain, without you doing any effort, directly relate A to C together, mm-hmm. such that you relate, you do this kind of inference through your episodic memory. So if you want to give like, if I, I can tell you like a more precise example would be like, if you see someone going out with a dog in the morning, then you see the same dog with a different person in the afternoon, immediately your brain is going to try to connect the two people that were going out with the dog. And that's the kind of inference that episodic memory we know support. Mm -hmm. So that's quite important, right? Right, right. And what is the history of memory in this effort to kind of get us closer to AGI? How have we used memory in the field to facilitate intelligence? Okay, so 
these are, I think, a nice question because I think in some sense, the kind of memory I'm talking about is still an open mm -hmm. question, mm -hmm. how we do it properly in uh, AI. We have different forms of memory currently, which we know how to, mm -hmm. to play with. In particular, recurrent networks, both RNN and LSTM are uh, so-called working memory. That gives you like, a, imagine a whiteboard where you can write something and reason about that and then erase because it won't stay there forever. Mm -hmm. It's like kind of a canvas where you can make uh, predictions. That's what we know. Then we have also something called memory augmented neural networks. In that case, we basically give uh, neural networks an external memory where they can write previous computation that they performed and then read back from there and reuse previous computation. And this gets a little bit closer to the kind of memory I hinted before, mm -hmm. but we are not there yet. And then we have retrieval augmented models, which are those models that basically go back, in, if you like, in a table where we store almost everything we have seen in the past, like a dictionary, if you like. Okay. And then they try to look up things. But most of the time, they look up, they use that look up to answer, but they don't consolidate back the knowledge into the weights, if you like, of the system. So they need to do the lookup all the time, which in some sense is a waste. Mm -hmm. We don't do, as I said before, we don't do that. We kind of make sense of what we retrieve and use it later. Right. So in that latter case, you can think of it as kind of this fixed boundary between the memory and the computation in a sense. Yeah, in some sense. And the computation isn't ever updated the way we think about or the way the model thinks about its inputs is never updated with regard to the things that it learns in the memory. It's just checking the memory constantly with each input. Yeah. Sometimes that comes now to my mind, a model where that computation is updated, okay. but it's very difficult to scale up those models because they require a lot of computation. So we don't know yet how to make that model big to a scale where they're actually useful to target very complex problems. And also we have finally, the last one would be a very recent advancement in uh, AI, which is something that everyone knows, I'm sure, Transformer. Mm -hmm. These models have shown some of the properties of this kind of memory in language. They are what they, sometimes they show a few short learning, which is a prerogative of like the memory models I'm talking about, but that happens in language only, not in other domains. So I'm not sure if it's, that raised the question, it's because of the model capable of doing that, or it's because of the specific domain right. where you train the model that allows that. So no one has done that experiment yet, but I think it could be interesting. Can you drill down on that? How should we think about transformers from memory perspective and exhibiting these properties that you mentioned? Okay. First of all, I think most of the transformer that we use now in language are transformer Excel. And it's a specific instantiation of transformer whereby you add a memory and a sort of external memory at each layer of mm -hmm. the transformer. So we already know that that's necessary in some sense mm -hmm. to overcome some of the limits, like not having recurrence, for instance. Mm -hmm. So I would say they are limited in terms of memory also because given that we do this all-to-all uh, -all comparison over the sequence, we cannot process very long context. There are now papers trying to deal with that and, and reduce the complexity to linear size, but still, I don't think we are at the point where, let's say, we can process several books and ask inference questions about books without this sort of external retrieval all the time. Okay. You know, oftentimes there are ideas that we might want to apply in the context of neural networks. And a big challenge is 
you know, are they differentiable, you know, so that we can apply techniques like gradient descent? Is memory, you know, typically differentiable? Is it typically undifferentiable? And like, <laughs> how does that play into? You touched the perfect downside of like these kind of external memory where we do what is called a K-nearest mm-hmm. neighbor retrieval, and that's a non-differentiable mm-hmm. operation. So that obviously has some limitations on then what you can get. Again, I don't think with the current system, we know how to do backpropagation of a very large, which again, it's an open problem. I think it's a very nice problem to tackle and we should probably start. Now, I think we might be able to do it. How does the size of the memory play into whether we can backprop over it or not? Because most of the time you use a softmax operation over the dimension of the memory Mm -hmm. and it becomes quickly impractical to send gradients over a very large memory. And that's because it's computationally infeasible, so it doesn't fit in memory. And also when you get very large softmaxes, also you have problems with gradients, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the the flow of the gradients. There's another aspect of memory that comes to mind. You know, we've talked about specific kind of features and architectures that are used to emulate memory. But oftentimes, one of the critiques of deep learning is that the networks themselves like remember stuff. And, you know, that causes problems with generalization. Are there ways that can be harnessed more directly to achieve some of your goals for episodic memory? Yeah. Okay. I think, yes, memorization, it's definitely an issue, like overfitting. It's an issue, although Mm -hmm. most of what we do well is like kind of memorize. So we enlarge our data set of experience as we grow, right? So Mm -hmm. in some sense, we tend to overfit as well in most of what we do. So I don't think that's a huge problem. There was actually a nice paper last year called Direct Feed to Nature which I recommend the, your listener to look up from Uri Asson, which uh, basically poses these, the same question you are posing to me. And it basically answers, as we have grown as a species through evolution and also during our life, we kept enlarging the amount of experience that we use to our brain, our network. Mm-hmm. So in some sense, we kept memorizing. It's just that we don't always start from scratch. Mm-hmm. And also, we have this ability of generalizes that I think it's still a little bit missing from deep learning. Although we shouldn't recognize this, this generalization, it's not that we can generalize to everything, right? So we have, in some sense, limited as well in generalization. Maybe neural networks are slightly more limited than us, but we still, we already see some example of generalization which are starting to emerge in neural networks. And I think that's a good thing and something we cannot neglect. So for instance, I had a paper a couple of, in 2018, so three years ago in Nature, where we actually use, we imbue the neural network representation like the one we have in the brain, in the hippocampus. Mm-hmm. That was a navigation task. The agent was able to take shortcut and traverse part of the environment that was previously blocked. And the agent was able to do that with the right representation. So I don't think the problem is the backpropagation of the models themselves. Mm-hmm. It might be a problem how we train that in terms of what data we use and the representation that they, we force to emerge. You mentioned this paper that implemented something akin to the representation that's used in the hippocampus. What is that representation? How does that work? Ah, okay. The paper, we studied this thing called grid cell. Grid cells? Grid cells, yes. Okay. So in the hippocampus, it's a memory machine of the brain, but it's also the spatial machine. Okay. Right? You can see also spatial as memory, but that's not going to that. <laughs> <laughs> There's a whole field that I don't want to go okay. in. 
basically we have the two cells that probably the three cells that are more known like a head direction cell so those are cells that fires every time you look in a certain direction but i'm talking about allocentric direction so every time you face north there will be a cell firing with a certain uh, probability distribution over north and the same for the other allocentric direction. The north is not the cardinal north. The north is the one which relates to a certain reference point in the environment. So okay. let's say, okay. Then we have play cell. Those are neurons that fire every time you are in a particular location, independently of where you're looking at. And then we have grid cells, which are these visually and mathematically beautiful cells that basically fires uh, following an hexagonal lattice. Hmm. They have a 60-degree offset, and they are very beautiful. And no, there have been several theories that try to motivate the reason why we have yeah. that. And one of these was because we can basically we can use that to calculate shortcut, to calculate the shortest vector between two points. Okay. And we manage to do two things in that paper. First of all, we managed to make the representation emerge in our neural network, trained to do path integration, so to do a navigation task. Mm -hmm. And secondly, we used those representation in an enforcement learning agent, and we proved through several ablation as well, that was the only agent able to take shortcut. And if we lesion, let's say, some grid cell, the ability of the agent to take shortcut just went down. So it was kind of an empirical paper to prove what the grid cell are for. Is the idea in terms of the implementation that I'm imagining you're like adding sine and cosine elements to your loss function or something like that? Or is it more kind of data driven? No, 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 no. It's data driven. Okay. Our goal was really to be super data driven. Okay. And we, we achieved that by actually a specific, it was a recurrent architecture. Two things were really important. One was to introduce a dropout. Uh, such that no, not all neurons were able to fire at the same time. And the second one was introduce noise in the gradients. Okay. And that basically helped. But those are the two things we always want to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, but they don't seem particularly specific to this problem. That's probably why people like so much that kind of paper, because it was kind of a general approach to, <laughs> to make that. Although I have to say it was kind of difficult to analyze, but one of the reasons why noise helps because it helps you moving away from a certain solution in the landscape of the loss. Mm -hmm. And our way to work was to help the network going down the solution we, we liked, so grid cell. But that wasn't too difficult, actually, to achieve. Okay. And that's why I think it was a nice piece of work, yeah. Interesting, interesting. We were, I'm trying to, speaking of memory, I'm trying to remember how we got here. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, you know, the ponder stuff, I guess you invited me to talk about the ponder. The ponder yeah. mess, right? And it's inspired by memory, exactly from the study that I mentioned at the beginning. This thing about uh, relate doing inference, associative inference, uh -huh. that was part of my PhD. And one of the papers that came out during that time was this ability of the hippocampus to basically do this recursive pondering before actually being able to do this sort of inference. So you see people, I remember doing this experiment practically with people, and when you ask them to relate A and C, to tell you a story about AC, mm -hmm. they think more. They really spend more time in thinking mm. compared to A, B, and B, C. Got it. That's uh, how I got inspired because our brain works. So the same mechanism, because wh when we did mm -hmm. then fMRI study, right, the same mechanism was involved. It's just the answer was going out of the hippocampus and then back into the hippocampus a few times. And, but then was processed by the same system, if you like. And I think that's a nice property to have in, a, in an algorithm. 
Does that mean I'm probably taking this too far? (laughs) But, you know, when I hear you say that, I make associations like the brain knows how to do scanning and it doesn't have something like an inner join. Okay. I guess from a computational perspective, then I could ask you, what's the loss that the brain is minimizing then to do that? Uh Which I don't know. I don't know the answer. Maybe, I, I don't know. Maybe it could be uncertainty reduction because at the end of the day, we want to get better prediction. We want to be able to, I think better predict the model, the world, because it's then it will be less uncertain and so less risky. But I think there are people like much better than me that could explain that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that was going in maybe a slightly different direction. I was inferring from what I heard you say was that when we ask people to do these kind of associative types of tasks or inferences, you know, where they need to get from A to B and B to C you know, that takes longer, which kind of suggests that there's not some built-in associative ah, okay. thing. I see, brain. I see. Okay. No, because in the FMI study that we did, we saw that also if we do longer inference, we are still able to do that. Mm-hmm. It just takes more time, even more time. Mm-hmm. So I think that the algorithm we apply is the same, which is this ability of making associations. Mm-hmm. It's just that the longer the jump that I ask you to do mm-hmm. in, do, in doing this sort of associative mechanism, the more you need to do, you do it a bit hierarchically, right? You put, right. I don't know, the things that are just two steps separated, you calculate that, then three step, and then you might be able to put together two and three and do five. Mm-hmm. So we went down this particular rat hole in trying <laughs> to provide some context for PonderNet which I'll have you explain, but I still don't really see the connection with memory. When I read the abstract for PonderNet, I think about things like hyperparameter tuning and like early stopping, like the way we train networks and like pulling that into the network as opposed to anything having to do with memory and the stuff we were just talking about. Yeah, yeah, okay. So tell me more about the connection. Two-way answer about the connection. The first one is the more high level, maybe and wavy if you like, it's generalization. So we believe that mechanism like PonderNet Mm -hmm. can get you a little bit far in terms of of generalization compared to not doing pondering in uh, deep neural networks. And that's the kind of things that, we discussed before, right? Mm-hmm. So one of the benefits of memory is you're giving you the ability to, to have the right input to generalize, I guess. Let me put it this way. Mm-hmm. The second is that a previous work to PonderNet was another work I did during my PhD, which was called MEMO, and was a, a memory augmented neural network, where we did exactly, we studied this mechanism of recirculation. You, the network spit out an answer, you compare it with previous answer, and you only give the final answer to a certain problem when you are satisfied. So you, you were already like already implementing this sort of pondering mechanism. But there mm-hmm. it was really, really early stage because we use uh, basically reinforcement learning mm-hmm. to train a newly variable that was basically saying go or stop. And we saw mm-hmm. that this was really hard to train and very noisy in terms of variance. So we decided mm-hmm. to do something more principled. Uh, that's what led us to PonderNet. Okay. So taking a step back, what's the problem that you're trying to solve with PonderNet? 
Yeah, I think that's the first line of the abstract, which basically says that the normally neural networks, so the amount of computation that we spend in neural network grows with the size of the input, but not with the complexity of the problem. Mm -hmm. But as we just mentioned, like a few minutes ago, that's not how we reason, right? The more complex the problem, the more we spend time on it. Uh, mm -hmm. And that's what we wanted to get, essentially, uh, with this, this work. And also we wanted to make it fairly general, such that it could be applied to any architecture that was, yeah, to be architectural agnostic. Got it. And so the size of the input, we know what that means. You know, we're talking about like feature dimensionality. Yeah. Uh, we know the problems that come along with that. Complexity of the problem. <laughs> what exactly does that mean? And how do we measure that? Okay. So I think empirically, again, we have like an example I like in the paper is that it takes more to divide than to sum. Mm -hmm. So that's exactly the same problem, mathematically speaking, but for some reason we spend more time dividing than doing summation, right? Mm -hmm. So that's empiric uh, an empirical uh, answer, I guess, to your question. A more mathematical one, I think it would require me to think a little bit more. It's fair to say that we're talking about the computational complexity of a given problem as opposed to some conceptual type of complexity, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So if you have to apply the same algorithm, so the algorithm is the same, it's just that the specific instantiation where you have to apply it requires more, more compute time. Mm -hmm. So it's like a computer, right? So it's the same, you apply the same function, but in some circumstances, it takes more time. So the computer thinks more. That's not how neural networks work. Mm -hmm. They imply the same amount of thinking for each input. Mm -hmm. I can give you another example. In a sentence, for instance, when we read, we don't spend the same amount of time gazing each single word in a sentence. So that's been proved uh, in psychology. So we tend to focus our attention on few words in the sentence that are more important to process the whole thing. That's another practical example. Okay. Okay. And so you want to create a neural network that, you know, would you describe it as kind of budgets, it's computational investment in solving a problem according to the inherent complexity of the problem? Is that a way yeah. to think of it? Yeah, uh, I would say it's a fair description. And so how did you do that in PonderNet? Okay, first of all, this is based on a previous work called Adaptive Computation Time. Mm -hmm. And the problem there is that they directly minimize the number of pondering steps, so the number of steps the network took, whereas in our case, what we did was to make this probabilistic. To be slightly more practical on this, for each time step in the sequence, we calculate the prediction, the probability of halting, and the next step. Mm -hmm. So the probability of halting is just a Bernoulli random variable, which tells you the probability of halting at this particular step, given that you have not altered in previous step. Mm -hmm. And then from there, what we can do then is to calculate a probability distribution by basically multiplying the probability at each time step in order to form a proper distribution, a proper geometric distribution. Mm -hmm. Once we have that, what we can do is to basically weight each single, so we calculate the loss, each prediction in the sequence that we made, 
And then the loss is then weighted by the probability of having alt at that particular step. And that's a critical difference between us and ACT, because in ACT, they instead output a weighted average of the prediction. So they don't output a, a specific prediction, but a weighted average of the whole prediction. And that creates a bias in the gradient. Whereas in our case, we can basically just really take the exact loss at each time step, okay. given the decision of Alti. And then we take the particular at training time, we take just the particular step that has a threshold that basically surpassed the threshold that we decide for Alti. Whereas at test time, we just sample from the probability that from the probability distribution that we learned. Okay. I mentioned earlier that calls to mind, you're talking about halting here, calls to mind, early stopping is the idea that, you know, early stopping is kind of like trying to conserve training time is the idea here that we're trying to conserve inference time. Like we have an input, we're trying to make a prediction. Instead of going through the whole thing, let's keep going until we're sure what the answer is and then stop early. And this is an approach to getting there. Yeah, I think our hypothesis was that, you know, you can, let's say you want to implement an algorithm on your phone. You can train it in the cloud. No problem mm-hmm. at training time, like the amount of computer. Okay. <laughs> a few people, no problem. <laughs> but then at inference time, you want to be quick. Yeah. And that's important. But now I'm, I'm laughing a little bit. But if done properly, I think this could help also reducing the amount of resources that you, you spend at training time. Because we actually have an experiment in the paper where we see that the total number of gradient updates for PonderNet are smaller than other methods, given the same final performance. So this could also help reducing the amount of resources that for certain people, I guess. Okay. And then circling back the connection to memory here, is it in storing these probabilities and the Bernoulli variables, that kind of stuff? Or is there a different connection? Yeah, I guess we left the connection with memory maybe a little bit behind because, okay. however, you might think, I remember one tweet that actually also inspired this work a little bit from Andrei Karpati, mm-hmm. who was basically saying one of the limitations of Transformer is actually they spend the same amount of compute for each token in the sequence. Mm-hmm. So if we treat, broadly speaking, again, a little bit like Transformer as a form of preliminary memory, right? You can think of applying this on top of Transformer and, and see if that could help, right? Maybe spending different amount of compute per point in the sequence. Got it. Got it. Got it. I understand it's a bit stretchy, but... Yeah, it's kind of, a, it's an analogy of some sort. It's not necessarily an implementation of a memory system that we're talking about here. Is PonderNet is a specific network architecture as opposed to a technique that you could apply to different architectures or is it the, the latter? No, 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 no. It's a technique. Okay. So if you see in the paper, the step function, what we call S in the paper, could be anything. It could be an RNN, a CNN, a transformer, okay. an RL agent, whatever. As long as you return, as long as you add this extra unit that calculates the probability of halting, you can apply it to everything. That was important for us. And indeed, in the paper, we do that. So we applied it three different architectures. Okay. And how did you evaluate the results? So we use one task from the ACT paper called the parity task. So you have a string of one and zero or one and minus one, whatever. Mm-hmm. And you need to calculate the parity of that string. So it could be either odd or even, right? Mm-hmm. And the good thing that we could, that's a nice task because you can also train on parity up, let's say in our case, up to 48 
uh, integers, mm -hmm. but then test up to twice as long the length to test this ability of extrapolate. Okay. And indeed, we see that our network extrapolate much better than baselines, the other methods. Then we applied it to a reasoning task, which is called Babi. And basically, you have 20 tasks which you train all in parallel. It's a language task where you get asked uh, questions. So I guess the first thought that occurred to me is with some number of bits that you're trying to calculate the parity for, it's not like you're trying to end the bits together and as soon as you hit a zero or something like that, you know the answer, right? You still, you need to look at all of the bits yes, and yes. the input for parity. Yeah, yeah. But your premise is that independent of that particular fact inside the network you could still stop early relative to going through some number of computations and still answering the right question and still answer the, the question correctly we have a baseline we pick this task exactly because we know this is a task that like a normal rnn is having trouble doing okay got it that's a kind of a well-known issue in, in this sort of literature okay Got it. Before we continue on, I know we got a little bit of a late start with technical stuff. How are you doing for time? Yeah, the only issue is that my son will be home in 10, 15 minutes, and okay. there's nothing I can do about that, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> then all hell breaks loose. So we, we'll try to... Uh, we can bring him on board, which <laughs> it's at your risk. <laughs> Maybe you can answer, help us answer some of these questions. <laughs> maybe, maybe. <laughs> and so uh, a final question about PonderNet. We talked a little bit about the generality of this technique. Has it made its way into some kind of production scenario yet? Or is that something that you're anticipating? I don't think, I, I don't know. I don't have a definitive answer for now. It's the first publication. Of course, we are going to continue working on these because I like the topic, but... Mm -hmm. This is what we published. Awesome. Got it. Got it. On the topic of transformers, which have come up a couple of times, uh, you did a workshop at ICML talking about transformers and reinforcement learning. Can you talk about taking two topics that people are really excited about and combining them together? Tell us a little bit about the goals of that work. Yeah, so I think I really got inspired by the BERT work where they have this non-causal masking. And in RL, we keep using LSTM, essentially, for doing most of the task. But we know that they suffer from what it's called uh, regency bias. So they tend to pay attention only to the last bit of the sequence that they are trained on. Mm -hmm. Which, to be honest, for most of the environment that we use nowadays, it's fine. But if you grow in size and the context you want to pay attention to is quite long, then, then they start to suffer. Okay. So one option uh, would be to use transformer because we know that they can handle long-term, long context, longer context than LSTM. However, the problem in RL is that the rewards are sparser most of the time, and the gradient uh, has been shown to be uh, noisier. So it's difficult to train so many weights. So what we did in that work was basically to generalize the BERT training to, which, you know, is done on tokens. Those are mm -hmm. like categorical numbers uh, so that you can apply softmax on the other side. We generalize the BERT masking to real value numbers input. So to basically features. Mm -hmm. So we send the features from the CNN into the transformer. We mask some of them. And then on the opposite side, we basically use a contrastive approach 
to reconstruct the masked input. So we give uh, some negative taken from the same sequence and positive and the network has to discriminate. And also what we did in that work was to combine LSTM and Transformer in the same architecture. And the good thing about that is that it helps you reducing the size of the Transformer to gain in speed. So because, and we let the agent actually learn when to use Transformer, uh, sorry, when to use LSTM alone or when to combine mm -hmm. Transformer and LSTM such that in some tasks it can basically avoid the extra complexity of the transformer and just use the LSTM, whereas in other more complex tasks, it will focus on using both. Got it. And so in a sense, there are echoes of the PonderNet paper in that you're trying to manage the computation or let the agent manage the computational investment based on an assessment of complexity. In some sense, yes, through the RL gradients there. So that mm -hmm. was really the agent by playing with the environment that was deciding what to use. Mm -hmm. Although I would love to actually have agents that stop and ponder, that I think would be nice. Uh -huh. What types of problems did you experiment with for this paper? Three different domains, the whole of Atari suite okay. and deep mind control suite, which I'm particularly proud because it's something that normally with policy methods like the one that we had there, we didn't do so much work. Mm -hmm. And then deep mind laboratory, which is a suite of uh, 30 tasks, 3D complex tasks that you play all at the same time. So it's uh, also flavor multitasking at scale. That was the task really at scale. Mm -hmm. And from a performance perspective, what kind of results did you see? Was this, you know, promising enough to keep poking around at, or was it, yeah. you know, really good performance that kind of challenges state of the art? First of all, we always improve on that efficiency massively compared to baseline. Mm -hmm. And in many domains, especially in DM Lab, so DeepMind Laboratory, we actually also got state of the art performance. Okay which was what so then that's good because that was the more complex domain where we played mm -hmm. and i think that was kind of uh not an issue but uh, something we could have done slightly better to focus more and more on complex domain because i think that's where these kind of methods we shine so like complex architecture probably will benefit more from like complex method. Although I still think it's something i'm quite passionate about i think there's lots of stuff we can do to improve transformer and memory in general in, uh, in reinforcement learning, especially in relation to the length of the context that we can process. That's uh, something I think important and kind of a bottleneck in my opinion. Mm -hmm. uh, meaning the approach you took in this work, coupling the LSTM and the transformer and allowing the agent to choose, sounds like you're saying, you know, that that's kind of a beginning place, but there's a lot more to be done there. I think so. I think so. As for us, we have different sort of memory. As I said before, we have very long-term memory. We have short-term memory. I think our, I'm not the first one to say this. There are a few papers out there mm -hmm. yet already where they argue, and I argue that agents should be equipped with this sort of different timescale memory. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Andrea, thanks so much for taking the time to share a bit about what you're working on. Uh, it's been a pleasure, Sam. And again, thanks a lot for inviting me. It's actually an honor. Absolutely. Thank you so much. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. 
Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.